on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're asking today, what's in your heart? And really, this is part three, and uh, the answer that Jesus has in mind is actually divorce. So a difficult topic, but we're in this text for a reason today, so let's take a look at it together. And here's what we read. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. And there we read, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is God's word for us today, and I I hope you see with me that in these words Jesus is trying to elevate our understanding of and actually appreciation for marriage. He's validating and he's protecting the status and the dignity of women. He's giving us another very sobering picture of how desperately wicked our hearts are. And at the same time, he's inviting us yet again to reflect on how remarkable the gospel is. Did you catch all that in this text? We're going to see exactly how that's the case. Now, maybe you aren't married here today, so you might be thinking, oh boy, a sermon on marriage, it doesn't apply to me. And that's understandable, for sure. Some of you know Tim Keller, who pastors the church in Manhattan, and when he started that church, he realized that 80% of the attend, uh, those in attendance were single. And so he started thinking, man, maybe I don't need to preach about marriage uh, because of the population here of these people who are coming. Uh, But this is what he, he said. For the first several months of preaching, I assumed that a congregation of singles would not require the ordinary number of annual sermons on marriage and family. I soon realized I was wrong. What motivated me to preach about marriage to the unmarried? The answer is that single people cannot live their lives well as singles without a balanced, informed view of marriage. If they don't have that, they will either over-desire or under-desire marriage, and either of those ways of thinking will distort their lives. In other words, it is possible for us to over-value marriage, and we don't want to be doing that. And What he has in mind is that some people who are single think, my life is over unless I get married. Because when I get married, then I'll be fulfilled and I'll be satisfied. Or perhaps I am meeting cultural norms or my mother will stop bothering me about having kids someday or whatever the case may be. And as lofty as marriage is, we can overvalue it. And Keller makes the point that even during Jesus' day in society, everything was attached to being married to a man who could provide for you. Women did not have the same status, so they had to to attach to somebody's name who would give them access to all the resources and the cultural norms of that day. So people who maybe even willingly were single were saying, my hope is not in marriage. My hope is not in what can be provided but in Christ. My hope is in his body, the church, mothers and fathers galore that come as you become united with the family of Christ. So there's something very admirable about that single status. As you know, Jesus himself, who's 
sharing these words, was single. He never got married. Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, a pretty significant individual, was single. So it's okay if you're single. And we don't want to overvalue marriage. But at the same time, we can undervalue it and reduce its significance. And Jesus, in this text, and the supplemental text we'll look at in a second, that really informs our perspective on Jesus' view of marriage, elevates marriage to a pretty significant role in God's kingdom. We're talking about living life in God's kingdom, and we're calling it the upside-down kingdom because it's a little different than you might think. We started with the Beatitudes, and what Jesus values is very different than what most other cultures value. He says, if you want to be in my kingdom, this is what it looks like. And we see that it's okay to be single, but he also elevates the status of marriage. God does that right from the very beginning of time. And it's actually used as a picture of Christ's love for his church as well. So marriage does matter. Now, in order to understand the, the force of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5 around divorce. Let's look at the supplemental passage that comes a little bit later in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is having a dialogue with a group of religious leaders for the day, the Pharisees. And they come and they, they come to Jesus in this passage in, in Matthew 19 verses 3 through 9. And they're going to test him. And here's what they do. They say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus replies, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus makes that same statement in Matthew 19 that he made back in Matthew 5, but we see a little more content on his perspective of marriage. And just to summarize in general, you could say that the Pharisees focus on what makes divorce allowable, and Jesus focused on what's, focuses on what makes marriage great. The two different perspectives. They're trying to look for the out. And Jesus says, that's not what it's about. In the least, you're, if you're focused on that, you're missing its main purpose. And the reference to Moses, both in Matthew 5 and 19, that allowed for a certificate of divorce, you can look back in Deuteronomy 24, was a topic of great debate among the people who were religious leaders of that day and theologians. How does someone qualify to get this certificate of divorce? And perhaps you saw in that Matthew 19 passage, can, can a person leave his wife for any reason whatsoever? You see, there were two schools of thought. There were some who were pretty rigid about it in, in a way that, that Jesus is here, and there were others who were incredibly lax or relaxed about it. So that over time, you could get a certificate of divorce from your wife for a whole host 
of reasons. If she was quarrelsome, for example, you could get a certificate of divorce in many of these schools of thought. If you saw somebody who was even more attractive, it was possible for you to get a certificate of divorce. If your wife burnt your food and you didn't like the cooking, you could qualify for a certificate of divorce. And you, and you see what happens here when you say you're focusing on what qualifies as the out clause and then you start creating more reasons for it. And Jesus says, you're thinking about this all wrong. And Jesus is making sure those gathered understand that marriage, in his view, is sacred. This isn't something we're looking to disqualify. He's elevating our perspective. A woman should not have to worry about a husband leaving her without this high bar. A porneia in, in the Greek, and there's lots that's been written about what that means. But it seems like in view here, infidelity. He wants to protect women. And more than that, he wants to protect the institution of marriage itself. So Jesus, his heart on this teaching is to dignify, protect, and make marriage positive. Make marriage great. And so we read what's great about it from Matthew chapter 19 because we get a window as Jesus talks about why should we have this positive view of marriage? He says, first of all, God thought it up. This is not a man-made script. This is God's design way back in the beginning when he created everything. And when he was finished, he said it was good. You know, Adam comes and, and names all the animals. And I think we've mentioned before that there's no suitable partner for Adam. The giraffe is attractive, like in terms of, isn't that beautiful? But as a partner, not so great. And so God makes woman from man. And when Eve is presented in the Hebrew, my Hebrew professor claims that it reads something like this. Wow! <laughs> this one fits. She's attractive. And he's excited. Man and woman in the garden. Haven't you read that at the beginning, God created them, male and female? God instituted it. And, and it creates a new family unit as well. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There's a, the leaving and the cleaving, right? You, you leave one family unit, and some of you are like, I can't wait to get out of this one so that I can start my own dysfunctional family unit. <laughs> Because that's what happens, by the way, right? If you don't like a church, you leave it, you start your own one after a year, you disagree with yourself, and it's a problem anyway. <laughs> Marriage is the same, it's, it's, but it's, it's beautiful, it's good, but you're, 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 you're creating something brand new. And that's, that's exciting, that's thrilling. I, when I do, when I do marriage, uh, marriage ceremonies and weddings, there's a sense of excitement. Everybody's excited. I mean, typically, right? Or else you shouldn't be there. And, and that's the case for everyone as well. We're all just like, oh, I remember my wedding vows and everything, and 50% of marriages end in divorce. 
Should we be sad at a wedding now? Oh, they got, they got half a chance. You know, fl- flip a coin. They're probably never going to make it. It's, isn't this a depressing experience today? Because that's not the aim or the target. You're creating a new family unit with all the hopes and possibilities, and that's a good thing. In fact, it's a beautiful thing because it, it allows for a unique form of intimacy. There are no longer two but one flesh. That's a picture, obviously, of, of the physical intimacy that's experienced and reserved according to God's economy for this one flesh union. But as we said a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about adultery, it's a spiritual reality. It's an emotional reality. It's a mental reality, the two becoming one. You maintain your unique distinctiveness, obviously, but there's something mystical and new and even legal in a court of law that says you're a new family unit and you have access to something that nobody else has. You get to love your spouse in a way nobody else has. It is exclusive. It's a privilege and an honor. And I know sometimes it feels like a burden. Because we all bring sin into the marriage. But in the midst of that sin, that's where it's sanctifying. You know, I've heard the line before that marriage isn't really for our happiness, but for our holiness. And if that's the case, if you believe that, then strap in for the ride. Because you'll have all kinds of opportunities for your own sin to be exposed, even as you see somebody else's. And that's part of what it means to be intimate in a relationship. When you make your vows, if you have the traditional American vows, it's for better or for worse. You know what you're getting into, people. On the front end, you're making these vows, but they all sound like theory until you start getting into the practice. It's hard. And Jesus also says it's designed for permanence. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I mean, that is, that's kind of an assuring thing. Here's somebody who's committing to me in my mess until death do us part. Don't you want to be loved and pursued like that, no matter who you are? That's a good thing. It's a great thing. Jesus affirms that marriage is wonderful. It's God's design So don't focus on how you can get out of it, but rather cherish and nourish what God has given. But like everything else, because we've just lived in Genesis 1 and 2 largely, Genesis 3 comes along, and it spoils absolutely everything. Sin enters the world, and it ravages all relationships, and it it disarms our beautiful perspective, even on the best of things, like marriage, for example. And when Satan leverages that opportunity for sin entering to begin putting doubt in our minds about whether God actually made something good that's all of a sudden so hard, the first thing that happens is a marriage fight, a spat. And I don't know if in the thousands of hours that Steve and Nancy have experienced married life, they've ever had something that would qualify as a marital spat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The first conflict here really happens between a man and woman in husband and wife relationship. The two have become one flesh, and Satan, if he's going to attack anything, he might as well go for that. 
And he does. And you know what happens. Blame each other. Uh, deflect. Start looking for other excuses. Minimize the sin. Hide shame. It's a mess. And don't forget that there's Satan in the form of the serpent in the garden. Also, whose job description, Jesus said, is to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He's the father of lies. When he speaks lies, it's his mother tongue. How about that? What's your mother tongue? Lying. <laughs> and he doesn't, even, he doesn't even care. So he's, he's, he's going to lie and whisper non-truths. That's just what he does. If he can steal from you, he's going to do it. If he can kill you, he'll do it. If he can destroy you, he'll do it. And the first thing he aims at is this relationship in the garden. And he's having pretty good success right off the bat. And of course, since you've got people who are uh, also sinners and, and sin has entered the world, you've got cultures that develop and begin to create their own sense of what right and wrong is. And Genesis 1 and 2 makes the claim, God has designed everything and he has said, this is what right and wrong looks like. And when we reject that, we start setting our own standards. And this happens quite a bit in the Bible. It's not just in modern culture. It's back there in the Bible. Where we read pretty soon, things go so south, so so fast that there's nobody doing right in the entire world except for one guy, Noah. That happens in Genesis chapter 6, people. Culture was bad back then. Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6. And then, you know, Joshua comes along so exciting. God's people are finally in the promised land after they've been wandering and complaining in the desert for years upon years upon years. Culture was bad. And then we read in Judges, and you turn the page, everybody's doing what's right in his or her own eyes. Moral standard, up to me. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's happening over and over and over and over again. Romans chapter 1, not long after Jesus' day. We're defining our own sense of morality. And what God says is good, we're going to say, eh, we got a different definition for it. It just happens over and over and over. So as much as we might be thinking, some of us, like, what's happening to our culture? Look at the Bible. It happens over and over and over again. That's just what we do, is say, you know what? God's got his kingdom. I don't like it that much because it causes me to say, I have to recognize I'm not in line with it. I got a great idea. I'll make up my own. That's not life in God's kingdom. That's life in your kingdom. How's that working for you? How's that working for us? And when Jesus comes here and he's talking to these people who are gathered around, he's going to do the same thing today that he does over and over again because he says, look, it's not really about the Pharisees and the culture around you. He's going to start pointing exactly at us individually and say, what about your heart? Because the real problem underneath all this is your heart. The most significant problem lies within. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. That's the real problem. You can set up all these uh, standards about what qualifies or doesn't, read the fine printing. That's just all pointing to a heart problem. 
So before we start looking around us and wondering, we got to start looking inside. You know, there's that mysterious passage in Peter that says judgment begins with the world, right? No. The house of God. It's perhaps why, statistically speaking, divorce is as common in the church as it is around anywhere else. And you lose a little bit of your power when you start looking at those stats to say, marriage is good. So Jesus, again, invites us to look within. What's in your heart? I mean, he said, you know, murder is in your heart when you're angry. Adultery is in your heart when you lust after someone. Now he says divorce. And Jesus is inviting us to take a deep, long honest, hard look at ourselves, at the inmost part of our beings. You don't get to divorce without a problem in the heart. Keith Drury, who's a professor and practical theologian with decades of experience in the church, wrote a book called Money, Sex, and Spiritual Power, and he gives the anatomy of adultery, kind of a step-by-step potential slide into adultery. And he got this from asking people who had gone down that path, believers. So what happened? So just to get a little practical, here's just a glimpse of what he said. There were 15 and uh, 13 through 15 are just getting too racy. So I'm only going <laughs> to s- 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 go start with one. You know, you start with sharing common interests. You know, he's so spiritually minded, I've been looking for someone to share my spiritual struggles with. And then mentally comparing with your own mate, right? She was so understanding and would listen to me and my hurts. My wife was always so busy and rushed. We didn't have the time to talk. The grass is greener over there. Meeting emotional needs, third. My wife was busy with the kids and not at all involved with my work. This girl admired me and treated me like I was really somebody. It felt so good. Looking forward to being together. I used to dread going to work, but after we started our friendship, I'd wake up thinking of how I would see him later that day. It seemed to make getting up easier. And then there's tinges of dishonesty with your mate. Once my wife asked me about her, but I denied everything. After all, we hadn't done anything wrong yet. Now I see that this was one of those exit points where I could have come clean and got off the road I was speeding down. Flirting and teasing, we laugh and talk about how it seemed like we were made for each other so much, then we tease each other about what kind of husband or wife the other one would have been if we'd married each other. Talking about personal matters, we talk about things, not big things, just little things which he cared about or I was worried about. Minor physical contact, special notes or gifts, Inventing excuses to call or meet, arranging secret meetings, deceit and cover-ups, and then you're well on the way to adultery. It's probably already happened here emotionally, and now it's just going to get physical. Which Jesus says is the pathway to the ending of that relationship, even in the eyes of God. Now, here's the thing. If we're talking about the heart, have you noticed how deceptive it is? 
You can maybe in a moment of rational clarity look at a list like this and say, yeah, I would never do that. Or I don't want to do that. But when you get caught up in the moment and there's promises of things that haven't been delivered in the context of your own space, you get pretty good at rationalizing, justifying, and hiding all of this stuff. And that's because the heart is deceitful above all things. If you're a follower of Christ, please listen to Jesus' words here. You cannot go down this road. The price is too high one to pay. And he was using some very strong language earlier. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And like we said, even if you do those extreme actions, you might still have issues because the problem is underneath. And that's why Jesus says, I'm after your heart. You know, these external things, they'll come if the heart is right with God. You can do all kinds of things to make people look like you're great. But God knows your heart. Every secret is laid bare before him. You can fool other people. Some of you are experts at it. You fool yourself. But not God. Fallout here in the case of divorce is utterly devastating. Anybody here who's experienced it, would you recommend it to someone else? Okay. <laughs> so we know we don't want that. And we need to build in a, a strategy of sorts and at least get to the, the real issues and say, God, you've got to deal with my heart because I see a pathway I could easily go down. I mean, how many of us can look at somebody and think, I never thought that person would be the one? I know people who are so disillusioned with ministry in the church because they've seen the affairs that have occurred from a pastor who is up front telling you all to be holy <laughs> and then running away with the secretary or someone who's a teenager in the youth group. That is devastating just in and of itself, but then those are real people. And kids enter into the picture and it's devastating. So how can we get serious about this then before you get to the end? And just a couple of brief thoughts because we could probably make an entire sermon series out of this question. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? I would recommend that if you're anywhere on that list or something like it, be honest with somebody. And maybe, maybe you need to start, start with somebody you trust, not anybody who's going to put it out on Twitter or anything like that or Snapchat to everybody or whatever. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Be honest with somebody. I think there's power in opening up your mouth and speaking it because there's a lot happening inside that you can hide. And once you say it, it's out there. And it is kind of risky because somebody but you need to say it. Be honest about this rest. And, and for husbands and wives, you know, I would say husbands start with a trusted friend, a, a, a guy friend, because he may be able to say, that's something you got to share with her. Or uh, maybe you better not say that quite yet. Let's do some work. But you need some accountability built in, and that's just separate from being honest with somebody because then you really have to, to say, there's some work to be done here. What's happening inside of me? And here's the thing. You're not that good at diagnosing yourself. 
It's kind of like when you start getting sick and you look on Google and you see all the symptoms and you're like, oh, I've got this. What do we even need doctors for? <laughs> WebMD is my doctor. No. I, I guarantee doctors would argue otherwise. And so the same thing is probably the case for your heart. You need others who maybe have been down there before and say, brother, you better quit right now. <laughs> Because I'm telling you, you're playing with fire. And I've been burned and scorched. It's a weapon of mass destruction. Look, my arm's gone. <laughs> so get some measure of accountability. Set some serious safeguards. I mean, do something about it. Run away! I mean, that's not just Monty Python in a very old movie, but it's also, it's also Paul. Flee from sexual immorality. Because you know what? It is powerful. We are, we, are, we are physical beings. God made us for pleasure. And if there's a promise of it, it's kind of hard to fight. So run away. It is far easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. You're not that strong. My, my youth leader was a substance abuser who got saved and his life was radically changed. And in just a couple weeks after meeting Christ, he went back to his friends to witness to them, and he became a substance abuser all over again. And the second time through, he said, I need new friends. <laughs> Finally realized that. And he said, I know I'm not strong enough to go back there. Now today, maybe, he's been walking with the Lord for 40 years. He's probably solid. But it took a long time for him to realize where his identity was. And, to, and, and for those temptations not to be so haunting so that he could say, those don't do anything for my, me now. My affections are pointed elsewhere. And I fed and nurtured that love and affection for something that really satisfies permanently in a way with a clear conscience that those things never did. So know yourself. And then I would suggest also nothing new, but remember your first love. You know, this is one of the things that's an opportunity for husband and wife today as you enter into your X number of anniversaries to, to just say, hey, look, what did we do in the beginning? That's from Paul, uh, I mean, from the book of Revelation, in one of the churches you remember, Ephesus, remember your first love. That's good marriage advice. Do some of the things you did in the start. Have you written a love letter recently? Do you know the thing you... Take a pen and you put it on a piece of paper and you fold it up in a heart or something like that. And you leave it for the, I don't know if that's what you did, but what is it? I mean, it's not just putting things off. You put things on. You create and cultivate new grass. You sow seeds of Eden, as we've said before. That's the opportunity in marriage. But of course, hopefully you realize, whether you're married or not, that all of this is a picture of what's happening with the heart. And there's a spiritual reality to it as well. Because all throughout the Bible, we're pictured as the bride of Christ. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, belong to Christ. He paid for you. He made vows to you that he will stay true to the end. And unfortunately, that biblical narrative where God's people leave him again and again, that language is the language of adultery that God uses. There's a whole book written about it. 
about, about adultery, about you being unfaithful to the first commandment. Jesus talked about the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, and the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. All the other commandments hang on that, I think. If he is your first things first that we put out there sometime, if your heart is truly his, he is your God, then when you give your affections to somebody or something else, whatever it is, you're on that pathway towards the anatomy of adultery that we were looking at before. If, so married or not married, if you're a follower of Christ, your allegiance is to him. He's the one who's laid down his life for you. Therefore, honor God with your body. Refuse to let idolatry overcome your hearts. Or this is tantamount to infidelity. Whether that's love, of money, status, pleasure, approval, security, comfort, accomplishment, it doesn't matter. These are not ultimate Keller says this, marriage was created to be a reflection on the human level of our ultimate love relationship and union with the Lord. It is a sign and foretaste of the future kingdom of God. This high view of marriage tells us that marriage, therefore, is penultimate. It's not ultimate. It points us to the real marriage that our souls need and the real family our hearts were made for. Married couples will do a bad job of conducting their marriage if they don't see this penultimate status. Even the best marriage cannot by itself fill the void in our souls left by God. If that reality was really understood when people are coming down the aisle, there might be different outcomes. I know there's a lot of hurdles along the way, but I think at the end of the day, this is a spiritual issue. Your heart before God fully his. And a lot gets in the way, I know, like sin. So Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, don't let it get a hold. Do you see how he keeps driving us back to our hearts? You know, you, you said, don't commit a, a murder, but I tell you, if you're angry, that's the same as murder. Don't commit adultery. I say, if you've got lust in your heart, that's the same as adultery. So when he says, don't seek divorce, right? This is something that God has given that's good, but there's an allowance because your hearts are hard. Our hearts are the problem, and Jesus is after it. He's not messing around. You want to go join a social club where you get your status and everything and, and pin it on there or whatever, fine. That is not what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you want to walk in God's kingdom, it's rolling up your sleeves and saying, okay, God, do surgery on the heart. And his surgery is uncomfortable. <laughs> but it's good. You're in the hands of somebody who's got better precision than the best robotics in the world and who understands your heart because he fashioned you in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you. And for some of us, that could be electrifying. In others, it could be terrifying. And it should be probably terrifying to each one of us if it weren't for somebody stepping in. In that passage in Ephesians 5 that we often read at weddings is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Of which, if you're in Christ, you're a member. 
And he is the one who is ultimate. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. In him we live and move and have our being. He's the bread of life and the living water. And only his love is eternal. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, even if you have a spouse who has. He says, nothing can separate you from my love. And the nothing is qualified like this. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any creature. That's a lot of stuff. It's everything. None of that can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. His fidelity to you is ultimate. Even when you don't show fidelity to him. That fidelity toward us inspires, or at least it ought to inspire, our fidelity to him. Is divorce to be avoided? Yes. Is there hope after divorce? Yes. Like so many other things, God meets us in our brokenness, and he reminds us there's forgiveness, there are new starts, there is always hope. He can actually take our sin and employ it for his glory and our good. It's painful, though. It's devastating. It's awful. But even there, Christ meets us. That's the gospel. That's the hope always. We don't rush towards sin so that we can experience this. That's just stupid. And Jesus says that to the devil. And don't worry, I'm not going to say things I shouldn't about hell today. And you know, when, when, when Satan is, is uh, being tempting Jesus, go ahead and throw yourself off this, this, this ceiling here, the, the roof. And Jesus said, that's not how it works. That's foolishness. We don't rush toward that kind of testing. But even if we did, Christ meets us there. I'm going to close by reading a letter that was written by Tony White. Uh, Tony took some time to think about his own life journey, uh, and including divorce. And Tony's actually a candidate for elder and elder training now as well. And I asked him if he'd share. And if you want to know the level of pain of divorce, this happened quite a long ago, but it's still hard to talk about. But he was generous enough and vulnerable enough to write something that I could read uh, this morning to you. He calls it the beginning of my journey to find God again. After many years of marriage, my wife and I were divorced. My wife had an affair, and we were not able to get past it. It was a very emotionally painful and dark time in my life. The saddest part of all was that I would not be able to come home to my three-year-old son every night. I was hurt and lost emotionally for many years. Unwisely, I ended up in a long-term relationship that resulted in even more pain. I was running from God and avoiding dealing with my emotions. It was easy for me to point my finger at other people and say that they were the problem. My journey to true healing didn't start until I pointed my finger at myself. It was not only my emotional life that I needed to work on, but it was my spiritual life as well. I'd stopped seeking God's voice and I was drifting farther away. 
I started going to counseling for the first time in my life. I attended both individual and group sessions. It was extremely difficult, but desperately important to understanding how my childhood had affected my choices and decisions through life. It was one of the most painful times in my life, but definitely a time of great growth. As I worked on my emotional health, my spiritual life also improved. Through my pain, I found my way back to Christ. I found a church and started attending regularly. I read the Bible daily, cover to cover, for the first time. As a prodigal son, I came to truly realize what grace, mercy, and forgiveness really mean. I started talking with the Lord daily and finally listening for his voice. I started tithing for the first time in my life. My professional life was improving dramatically. I was striving to live in faith and hope. After years, I prayed and told God that if I was going to be in another romantic relationship, I wanted him to bring someone into my life that loved him more than they would ever love me. Isn't that a great prayer? My beautiful wife, Pam Tona, Toma White, and I have now been married for over 21 years. And I am truly a blessed man. No matter how dark life gets for any of us, if we trust in him and stand in faith, he will bring light into our darkness. Thank you, Tony. Father, we today pray our hearts are stirred not to look for the out clauses of life, but instead to focus on the beauty of what you have given to us. And that may apply in all kinds of realms. Forgive us, Lord, for our hearts tend to wander. And not only do we look for ways out, but we tend to forget the many things that you have given us along the way. And perhaps that's why, as we began in Psalm 136, this litany of statements that says and reminds us again and again that the love of the Lord endures forever. Your love is a constant in a world where other loves can disappear. Even the greatest of love is somehow take, sometimes taken away in a moment's notice through death. But your love is eternal. As much as we change from year to year, Jesus never does. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for those of us who ache and yearn for that kind of love to be made manifest in a relationship of marriage, we pray we would not overvalue it or undervalue it, but that also we would trust you with the desires of our hearts. And that at the right time, if that is your good pleasure, you would grant it to us. For those of us in marriages right now, Father, we, may we remember our first love. May we set up the safeguards necessary so that we never reach that end and help us to be honest, certainly with others and definitely with you. And remind us once again in the midst of all this that there's always hope. Christ has a heart for those who struggle with sin. Your grace is always greater than our sin, Lord. So again, we seek your forgiveness and we passionately seek to honor you by living holy lives from the inside out. Today we remember how sacred marriage is. We're aware that infidelity is resident in our hearts and we always hold out before you and before each other how much greater Christ is than even the worst of our failures. 
We pray this in his name. Amen.